All right. Um, so this week, uh, we will continue on in our study of Romans chapter 8. Um, so this week, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 18 through 30 uh, as we continue on. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, open by reading that. And uh, you guys can follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, <clears throat> who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come here today, uh, thank you that, that we can um, open your word, and thank you that we can uh, just gather together and uh, see what it is that uh, you are trying to uh, teach us through this passage. I pray that as we examine this, that you'll open our hearts, open our minds, um, that you'll give me your words, and uh, that I, I would not rely on my own ideas, but that, that you would be able to uh, illuminate what it is you're teaching us through this passage, and that as we leave here, we'll leave here uh, knowing Jesus better and loving Jesus more than when we came in. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> So as we talked about last week, uh, we started veering toward the idea of suffering, uh, which is not a fun idea to talk about. Okay, We don't typically associate suffering with good things because it's suffering. Uh, it's bad. <laughs> Right, uh, but as we as we kind of steered toward that last week, we we get more into it at the beginning of this passage. And what this passage is showing us is that we live in a fallen and sin cursed world where bad things happen. Bad things happen all the time. For instance, sometimes you plan to have church in the park, and it's going to be great, and then it rains. Okay, that's just a purely hypothetical situation. Not that that would ever happen uh, two years in a row. But, 
right? So we understand that we live in a world that's been cursed by sin, and because of that, there is suffering. Now, this is not unique to Christians. What this passage is pointing out is that there is suffering in everything. There's suffering all over the place. Okay, it's not just because we're followers of Jesus that we suffer. Um, it's that suffering is a part of living in a cursed, in a sinful, in a fallen world. Uh, there's no way to avoid it. Okay, some people try, but it, it, it's unavoidable that at some point in your life you are going to suffer no matter what. No matter where you're from, no matter how much money you have, no matter who your parents are, at some point you will suffer. Okay? Some people more than others, but the fact is, sin has brought suffering into the world, and we are all subjected to that. So over the years, many people, you know, theologians, theologians, theologians is how you say that word, philosophers, pastors, priests, all these people have sought to address this problem of evil, um, as it's called. And sometimes they do that and it's helpful and we can understand that better. And sometimes they do that and it's heretical and uh, we can probably ignore what, what, what they say um, in, in ungodly ways. Uh, but the issue is not something that the Bible is silent about. The Bible speaks to this issue of, okay, there's a God, he loves us, but there's also suffering in the world. How do we make sense of that? Uh, it's not silent on that issue by any means. In fact, if we look at the first book of the Bible that was written, we believe it to be Job, okay? And the book of Job deals with this issue in depth of why is there suffering in the world? How did that come about? And here in this passage, we get kind of a New Testament believer's uh, perspective on this idea that there's a God, he loves us, but there's also evil in the world, so we need to reconcile those two ideals. So the first thing we understand is that suffering is universal, and it's a result of sin. The world as God originally designed it in Genesis chapter 1, where he declares everything very good, had no suffering in it. And I want to be very clear about that. God's original creation was free of death and pain and suffering and sorrow and all these bad things that we experience. But in this passage, we kind of get a very zoomed out view of all of known human history because what we see is that all of creation is subjected to suffering. That the sufferings are not unique to Christians, they're experienced by everyone and everything we see around us because sin has corrupted everything God made. So oftentimes people will uh, point to this suffering present in the world as evidence that God's not real or God's not who he says he is. But what we can see here is that the pain in creation serves a purpose. Okay, so as we look at this, it's, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The word us is doing a lot of heavy lifting right there, right? Because he's saying everyone is subjected to the suffering, but the payoff is worth it for us. So we really want to be a part of the us here, okay? Because the implication here is that the people who suffer and are not part of the us, their suffering means nothing. <laughs> 
Their suffering leads them to nothing. Okay? They suffer the same way everyone else does, only they don't have this, this, this glory that is going to outweigh that suffering waiting for them. Okay? So who does Paul mean by us here? Who's the Bible telling us the us is? It's first century Romans. Sorry, no. It's, it's Christians. It's believers. It's the people we just got done talking about having been adopted into God's family. So any believer has the same suffering as anyone else, only there is this glory waiting to be revealed that's going to far outweigh that. So when we think about pain, pain is something uh, I think all of us have experienced at some point. If not, uh, just raise your hand and I'll have the person next to you pinch you and then you'll know what I'm talking about. But pain is not pointless, right? Pain is not just something that happens. Pain points us to something, okay? If I fall and I break my arm, there's going to be some pain, right? And that pain is going to let me know, hey, your arm's broken and you don't have very good balance, okay? Pain points us to a problem. Pain points us to the fact that there's something wrong. Everything's not okay. If I'm in pain, I understand, okay, something is not functioning the way it should. Something's either broken or out of whack or, you know, I slept wrong because I'm old now. Something, but pain points us to a problem. Pain isn't just there just for no reason. It points us to there's something wrong here. And it's the same way in creation. It's the same way with, with the pain that's being talked about here that all of creation was subject to. It's pointing us to the fact that there's something wrong. There is an issue here that needs fixing. Now, according to the Bible, that issue is there's sin in the world. We're sinners. We're separated from the God who made us. That because of sin, we experience bad things. Now, there is this prevalent mindset, and it's not new, but that human beings, given enough time, are going to be able to fix everything, right? There's a better world coming, and we're going to make it. Okay? We evolved from monkeys, and we just keep getting better. Now, I'm not here to say that humans are getting worse or anything like that. Um, what I am here to say is, I don't know that that, if you read a history book, lines up. That somehow we are going to overcome our, our desire to uh, be mean to each other, for lack of a better term, and create this greater world. What the Bible's pointing us to is that there's a better world coming, and it's because God is going to restore everything. God is going to do away with the problem in this world, which is sin. So when we think about the, the, the issues in this world, when we think about the problem of pain, the pain is the indication that something is wrong, but... We don't have the means to fix it. If my arm is broken, I don't go, I'm going to sit down for a minute and see if that helps. I go to a doctor, right? Or at least I should. I probably wouldn't, but I feel like I've seen enough medical shows. I think I can set this myself. Uh, done no, no medical training whatsoever. I'd go to Judd, actually. 
Uh, <laughs> who would probably sign me to a doctor? Let's be real. Uh, so that we can see, um, obviously we're inside right now. This was going to hit a lot better if we'd have been outside. We can see that creation does still reflect God's glory in some way, right? Uh, Psalm 19, which was written by David, opens with, um, The heavens declare the glory of God. See? Uh, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So creation, while it's under the bondage of sin, is still reflecting God's glory in some way. But we need to understand as we look around at the world, even the things that are not human beings, even the things that, that we don't necessarily attribute sin to, are still under the curse of bondage. They're still under the curse of sin, according to this passage. So in... in illuminating this for us, the Bible uses a metaphor, okay? And it uses a metaphor that we can all understand even though we don't all participate in it, and it's childbirth, okay? Now I'm gonna kind of pull back the curtain a second here, guys. I've never actually given birth. Um, it's true. Uh, so uh, I cannot personally attest to the experience of childbirth, but we can all understand that childbirth um, is a painful experience, right? You know, I, I could put my mom on the spot here because we all know how much she loves spontaneous speaking. Um, but she would tell you, childbirth is a painful experience, right? Yeah, okay. She says yes. Good. And um, I can have Braden cover his ears, but is childbirth worth it? She says five, six of the time. <laughs> childbirth is an experience we understand as painful we understand that it's something that at the time is not pleasant to go through right we also understand that people having done it once frequently choose to do it again because the payoff is so great you get a baby uh, you get a child it's right there in the name child uh, right? You get something out of that that is so much better than the suffering you went through to get that, that you say, you know what? It was worth it. I will do it again. And in some cases, my mom's case, five more times, okay? Probably because the payoff the first time was Brad, and she was like, it has to get better than this. <laughs> um, you know, but... <laughs> We understand this metaphor, even though we don't all participate in it, that creation in its current state is in this state of suffering, and it's compared to the birth pangs. It says in verse 22, we know that a whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. There is suffering, but that suffering is pointing us to the greater thing that is coming. So we talk about the problem of suffering in the world. We talk about the problem of sin in the world. And people will always go, oh, well, how can there be a loving God if there's this going on? Well, the answer is that's pointing us to the fact we need a relationship with that loving God. That there is something greater coming. But it's not coming for everyone. And that is the truth of God's word. It says that it is coming for God. Believers, 
but everybody gets to suffer. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about this, but as we um, look, <clears throat> we can see that the end target of all creation is pointing us to the point where we will be reunited with God, where God will dwell with man once again. Everything that's going on, everything that has happened that we read about in history books and will happen is all pointing to this culmination where God and his people dwell together again. So the hope that God promises is not simply that the negative aspects of our human experience will be removed, but that our experience will be fundamentally changed. You don't get to the end of childbirth and go, whew, I'm glad I'm not in pain anymore, right? Because you have the joy of a new baby. I've, I've heard. So we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says uh, in verses 16 to 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So when we look at this passage, we need to understand there is suffering in creation due to sin, but it's nothing compared to the joy that God is bringing about in the end. It's not just that we don't suffer anymore. It's that our experience is fundamentally changed because we will see Jesus face to face as believers. So as we move forward here, we don't just see that suffering is the result of sin. We don't just see that suffering is throughout all of creation. But we see that even as believers, even as we look forward to this point, God is with us in the here and now. God promises us things in the here and now. All the promises aren't just, hey, stick with it till you get to the end. I promise it'll be worth it because God gives us promises for our daily lives. We see that in verses 26 and 27. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes we kind of view prayer as this uh, last-ditch effort when we've exhausted all of our other options, right? Um, I've tried to handle something on my own. Um, that has ended predictably, so now I'm going to get God involved because uh, I'm out of all my other options. Um, and I think sometimes that comes from this idea that, that God's this boss we want to impress, right, with how good we are at taking things on on our own, that we can hold something up to him and say, look what I accomplished without any of your help. That's not how God views us. That is made obvious from last week's sermon. God views us like a dad, okay, views his children, 
What dad doesn't want to help his kids? Not a good dad, right? Not a dad that is involved, not a dad that, that we would look at and say that is what God is trying to emulate here. A, a, a dad wants to see his kids succeed, and he is trying to help them do that. Okay? Unless you're like playing a board game or something, then at least my dad cheats. Uh, <laughs> but we're not trying to impress God with our ability to handle things on our own. Because we, he makes it very clear he is not interested in our ability on our own. He's interested in a relationship with us. Uh, Paul kind of opens his, his personal life up here because he includes himself with, with the group. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. He's not saying, you all's weaknesses. <laughs> you guys are weak. I'm doing pretty good, right? For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. He's saying this is a constant struggle in a Christian's life to the point where I am admitting I struggle with this. Uh, we can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because we see where Paul's prayer life needed to be aligned with the Holy Spirit's will. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, when talking about the thorn in the flesh, he says, And lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, hear this. Concerning this time, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul was saying, this was my prayer to God. This is what I was praying for, that he would remove this thing, Right? God's answer, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul is admitting here, listen, here was my prayer. Here's how the Holy Spirit realigned my view. I was praying for this thing, and the Holy Spirit interceded on my behalf and said, No, 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 that's not what you need. What you need is this. What you need is to understand that God's strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. You don't need your thorn in the flesh removed. And it's the same way with us as believers. So often we want to pray and we want to say, God, I want this. I need this. And listen, it's, it's not that God gives you a black mark for praying for the wrong thing. Okay, it's not that there there are well there are bad things to pray for, but it's not that if you're asking God for more patience or you're asking God for more opportunities to share your faith, it's not that God's going to go eh, nope, guess wrong, sorry, not giving it to you. But God Himself is interceding on our behalf with God. According to this passage, the Holy Spirit, who is God, the Holy Spirit is personable, personal. It's not some cosmic, impersonal force. He's God himself. He's dwelling in believers, and he's interceding on our behalf before the Father. God is seeking to bless us as his children. And he's working on our behalf to go before God 
in a way that we don't control, comprehend, or even fully know about, so that his work in our lives can be completed. It's kind of complicated to think about that. God himself is interceding before God on our behalf. And yet, that's what the, the passage is saying. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God is working in your life if you are a believer. The Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is never idle, okay? There may be times that the Holy Spirit calls us to rest. There may be times that the Holy Spirit calls us to step back and go, you know what, we should reevaluate. But it's never idle. It's never saying, you know what, you've accomplished enough. Time to coast for a little while, big guy. Here's what Philippians 1.6 says. Be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life if you are a believer. And not only that, but he is at work interceding on your behalf, making sure you get what you need. In Paul's life, it looked like Paul was asking for a good thing, for this thorn to be removed. But what the Holy Spirit understood Paul as needing is a greater understanding of how God was at work in his life, of who God was. And so that's what Paul got. Not the thing he asked for, which wasn't a bad thing to ask for, but what God desired for him. Because ultimately what we see from this passage in the last three verses is that God has a purpose for our lives. God has a purpose for every single believer's life. Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30 says, And now we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. In whom he called these, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. So when we look at Romans 8, 28, sometimes this verse is cited at times of grief or times of despair. God works all things together for our good. But it's a wonderful promise for us to cling to as believers. And it's speaking more toward the divine purpose behind our lives. Because this verse is saying that God is working things together in your life for your good according to his purpose. Sometimes we, people will drop off those last two words, right? Because it's not quite as convenient. But God is working all things together to drive us toward his purpose for us. And the wonderful truth of Scripture is that God's purpose never fails. Here's Job 42.2. It says, I know, Job speaking to God, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 14, 24 through 27, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, I, as I have thought, it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I, will break, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and my mountains tread him underfoot, and then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose against the whole earth, and this is the hand that has stretched out over all the nations 
For the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Now this is speaking to a very specific prophecy, but God is saying, listen, here's what I'm going to do. Who's going to stop me? Who's going to tell me what I need to do? Who is going to turn me back? And the answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question, okay? God's saying, this is what I'm going to do, and nobody can stop me from doing it. So when God says, here is my purpose for your life, you better listen up because that is what's going to happen. No one is going to stop God from doing what he purposes, from accomplishing what he desires to accomplish. And that is a good thing for us, right? Because if I put my faith in Jesus, hoping against hope that maybe he can come back and pull off some underdog victory against Satan, then that's not a very good thing to put my trust in. But my trust is in a God who cannot be defeated. And when he promises he will do something, I have that as an assurance. I don't have that as some vague hope that maybe one day I'll get to see Jesus face to face. I put my faith in Jesus, and I know that he's going to come through. I might not always live up to that, but I know he will. And so when we talk about, here's what God's purpose is for your life, understand this, God's going to accomplish his purpose. He's not going to be turned back. He's not, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. No one can turn God back. No one can deny God what he desires. We read about a guy in the Old Testament, right, who thought he was going to outsmart God. God said, here's my purpose for your life. You're going to do this. And he said, oh, no, I'm not. His name was Jonah, okay? Did God accomplish his purpose in Jonah's life? Yes. Did Jonah enjoy that process? No. You know why? Because Jonah thought he was going to fight God. Jonah was like, I'm going to show God. He's not going to get what he wants from me. And somewhere between getting puked up by a fish and then getting scorched by the desert sun, God accomplished his purpose in Jonah's life while Jonah was completely miserable about it. Doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way for Jonah. He could have just been like, okay, shipwreck, I get it. <laughs> but he decided not to. Okay, But God has a purpose for your life. And God's purpose is never denied. So that begs the question, what is God's purpose for my life? I hear you asking that, and it's a great question. Good job. And here's what I want to be very clear on. We all have different strengths. We all have different gifts that God has given us. And that's for the glorif his glorification and the betterment of the church. But, in general, the universal purpose that God has for all believers is to become more like Jesus. Verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's purpose in your life is to make you more like Jesus. I can say that with absolute certainty, not knowing anything else about you. God wants you, if you are a believer, to be more like Jesus. And that is what he is driving toward in your life. 
might look different for all of us because not everyone gets up here and speaks. Uh, I could not go sit down at the piano and do anything that sounded like music. Uh, there are some who can. I couldn't you know, stand up and sing. I certainly couldn't balance a budget. <laughs> um, but God has given us all different gifts. His overarching desire for all of us, though, is that we become more like Jesus so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the word used here for firstborn is the same word we get the idea of a prototype from. Okay, it's the, it's the same Greek word that we get prototype. And when we think of a prototype, it's the first thing of something that's made that all the other things after it are going to be mimicking. Right? It's the, the first one, and now all the other ones are supposed to be like this one. And when we think about the life of Jesus, he is to be the first one, but all the other ones after him are to be like this one. Right? We are all to mimic what Jesus did, the life he lived. Now, that probably looks different in year 2022 than it did in the year 22, <laughs> okay? Uh, but the fact is that God is trying to make each of us more like Jesus. Here's what uh, Philippians <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 say, Therefore God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus he should, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So we see that God's purpose for our lives is to make us more like Jesus, is to make much of Jesus, and that that brings glory to him in the end. All people who God knew beforehand would become believers in Jesus, he predestined to become more like Jesus. And we see the mechanics of that in verse 30. It says, Moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. I was lost. I was separated from God. Jesus was not separated from God. So God called me into relationship with him so that I could become more like Jesus because my status was not like Jesus and God called me into relationship with him so that I could be more like Jesus. It says, those he called, these he also justified. I was a sinner. I could not approach God on my own merits. Jesus could. And so God justified me so that I could be more like Jesus. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I have not been glorified yet, okay? But the Bible's speaking of this as such a certainty that it's as if it already has taken place. Jesus has ascended into heaven and one day will come again, okay? He defeated death. He overcame sin. And in making us more like Jesus, we have the promise that God will do the same in our lives. God has taken care of our sin problem. God has defeated death for us. And one day God will call us home. Whether it's by his return or our death, we know that one day, like Jesus, we will be in the presence of God. 
And so we see that God's purpose for our lives is to be more like Jesus. And that means making sacrifices. That means living by a different code than the people around us. That means rejecting sin and pursuing righteousness. That means hard decisions need to be made. You think Jesus had hard decisions to make? I think so. That means that we are to prioritize God's will above all, like Jesus did. But we also see that it ultimately works to our benefit. That even though we have this momentary suffering, that it is building up, it's pointing us towards something so great that it pales in comparison. And so there might be some here today who have experienced the suffering that comes with living in a sinful, in a fallen world, in a corrupted world. Stubbed your toe, skinned your knee. And I want to be very clear, the promises described in this passage are not, they don't describe you. They don't describe what will happen. You experience the results of sin and of man's fallen state, but you don't have any hope for something better other than, well, maybe people will get better. Maybe we'll just be good. The good news is that the point, the pain, points you to the problem. Sin has wrecked havoc on God's creation. But it comes with a promise. God can redeem you. God is seeking to restore all that he has made, and he has promised one day he will do that. And so as we consider this passage, if you're not a believer, understand that these promises do not apply to you, but understand that they can, that the invitation is open. That even though salvation ex itself is exclusive to those who have turned in trust and accepted the substitutionary death of Jesus on their behalf, that the invitation is all-inclusive. It's for anyone. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter uh, who you are. For believers, we understand we live in a sin-scarred world. We know what it is. That sometimes it's hard to know what it is that God desires of us, but we understand that God's ultimate desire for us is to make us more like Jesus. Know this, God himself lives in you. He's interceding on your behalf in order to provide you what you need to continue to become more like Jesus. So as we seek to do that, we understand it's not a practice without a promise. God's seeking to make us more like Jesus in the here and now, and it comes with a promise that we'll experience eternity with him. I'll close here with John, uh, John 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, 
that's believers, now we are the children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God is working in your life to make you more like Jesus, and that comes with a promise that you'll spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the promises of this passage. Thank you that as we look around at a world that is cursed by sin, that is uh, full of suffering and full of uh, the results of mankind's rebellion against you, we can look to the hope we have in Jesus. We can look to the hope we have that this isn't all there is, that one day there will be a, a new heaven, a new earth, a new world where you'll dwell with us. And I pray that you would help us to cling to that promise. But I pray that as we cling to that promise, you'd help us in our, our daily walk to become more like Christ, to reject sin, to pursue righteousness, and rely on you. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.